Well, folks, a very good morning to each of you up there in West Kilbride. I'm down here at home in Bottery in South Yorkshire. But I'm just so thrilled to be with you on this uh, Lord's Day morning. I want you to turn with me again today to the book of Nehemiah and uh, chapter 1. And today we're beginning to read down there at verse 4 through to the end of the chapter. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servants success today, by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And there we finish the end of Nehemiah chapter 1. And as always, we pray God's special blessing on the reading of his precious word. I'm sure many of you can remember the last time we unpacked the teaching of Nehemiah chapter 1. We looked at the first uh, two or three verses. We asked ourselves the question, can one person really make a difference? And we come back with the answer affirming, oh yes, one person can make a difference. So today I want us to tease that thinking out a little bit further and just probe a little bit deeper in our understanding of how Nehemiah did make a world of difference. Did you notice down there in verse 4 that when faced with a tremendous need that his immediate reaction is to say down there, when I heard these things. You see, the lovely thing about that is this. Here's a man who wasn't preoccupied with his own agenda. Here's a man who didn't live in a dream world of fantasy or even make-believe. No, no, this guy heard what Peter told him about the situation in Jerusalem and around the edges of that great city. He listened and he heard. I'm sure many of us know from experience, you can listen and not hear a word the other person is saying to you. But here is one man in touch with reality. He has his finger on the pulse, as it were. He feels the heartbeat of God's ancient people, his own people, and is deeply sensitive to their heartfelt and indeed heartbreaking needs. 
Here is a man in verse 4 whose heart bleeds with real concern, a man of unbelievable compassion. It just seems to me that even without reading between the lines, this guy is a man with a big, big heart. You know, he was separated from them by the best part of 800 plus miles, a vast track of desert. And yet, even though he's over there and they're down here, their needs were so close to his heart. There's nothing remote or distant about God's dear servant. He felt for them and he felt their pain so deeply. You see, here is a man who was called by God to build the walls of the city of Jerusalem. But you know something? Before they could put one stone on top of another stone, first of all and foremost, he had to weep over the ruins of the city. Here is a man whose heart is oozing with genuine love and care. In fact, did you notice in the narrative we read together, he was so moved that he actually melted in the presence of God. He shed liters of what I would call holy water. The tears flowed freely. And i got to ask myself the question today. When was the last time I or any one of us cried over our broken world? Or perhaps when was the last time any one of us in a prayer meeting or a similar gathering shed tears over the lost souls of perishing men and women and boys and girls? This guy did it because he was burdened. He was crushed on the inside. And I think it's important for you and I to realise today this was no flash in the pan for Nehemiah. He did it for the best part of four months because that's a time lapse between chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 1 of the second chapter. And hey folks, that takes a high level of commitment. This guy has lots of it. He sticks the pace and that begs the question, if that was you or I, would you and I be able to keep up with him? Did you see the verbs we have down there in verse 4? He sat down. He wept. He mourned. He fasted. He prayed. Hey guys, there's nothing sterile or passive about him. He's on the ball. He is hyperactive. He's up for it. He meant business. And I just love the way the writer tells about it right here. He devotes himself to the Lord to seek God's face. He just zooms in, as it were, on his daily walk with the Lord. He concentrates his mind on the living God of his fathers. And I think one of the lessons we learn today is this. That the more responsibility we shoulder in gospel ministry, the more time we need for contemplation before the Lord. We need to spend quality time in God's presence day after day, not just a few minutes at the beginning of a day or ten minutes tucked on at the end of a day before we uh, wrap the duvet around us. No, no, it's all down to priorities, isn't it? In fact, such is the pain in Nehemiah's heart that he even lost his appetite for food. This guy is so upset he can sit down and enjoy what we would call a square meal. Such is the burden he's carrying. I think it's worth noting again today that Nehemiah wasn't the last person to weep over Jerusalem. Certainly not. 
the Lord Jesus did it in Luke 19 and verse 41. In fact, as he looked over that great city, and he saw the people milling around, going about their daily round, he just found it impossible to hold back the tears. A people so sinful, so rebellious, like sheep going astray. You see, my friend, for both of them, Nehemiah and Jesus, people mattered. It's not about bricks and mortar. No, no, it's about people, real people, people like you and people like me. And that's what gospel ministry, Christian ministry, is really all about. People. Don't you love this about Nehemiah? He wears his feelings on his sleeve. But they also drove him to his knees, didn't they? And so we pleaded for God to intervene down there in verse 5, through the end of the chapter. And I mean, if you were to study the rest of the narrative of Nehemiah in his 13 chapter journal, you would discover this, that when he prayed, it was the most natural thing in all the world for him to do. It was truly spontaneous. It was immediate. It was par for the course for him. This was his first response to the mega problem. You know, I find that so challenging because unlike me so very often, he didn't see prayer as a kind of a last resort. The kind of thing we do when we've tried everything else and all else has failed. And when he prayed, how did he do it? Well, it was believing prayer. No doubts about that, is there? He begins by praising God for who he is. And that's always a good place to start, isn't it? In fact, if you read his prayer, you'll discover this. He homes in on eight relevant aspects of God's nature, what I would call an octave of attributes. This guy is bowled over with an awesome sense of God's majestic glory. He's exalting a God who is sovereign and mighty and holy and loving, and a God who is faithful and vocal and attentive and even merciful. Ah, my friend, the bottom line is, his God, like your God and mine, is a hands-on God. He's a can-do kind of a God. He is the omnipotent God. He's the gun who runs the entire show from start to finish and from beginning to end. And Did you notice that when he prayed, the problems didn't go away? They were still there. They were looming large before him, as it were. But they were dwarfed by an awareness of who God is and of what God can do. He is the Lord of heaven and of earth. No matter how large the problem may have been, no matter how high the mountain may have been, they were now seen in their proper perspective. But like we read in the early chapters of the Old Testament scriptures, they are like grasshoppers and God is a giant. Aren't you glad today that in 2021, our God is the one who can turn mountains into molehills, not the other way around. In other words, as the old song tells me, God is bigger than all our problems. So he praises God for who he is. And then did you notice what he did? He says sorry for their sin. 
And that's what you read down there in verse 6 and verse 7. And I appreciate this so much about Nehemiah. He doesn't make a single solitary excuse. No, no. Did you notice the words I and we in his prayer of intercession? You know what that tells me today? He identifies fully with the people. He's standing shoulder to shoulder with a generation of men and women that, quite honestly, he doesn't even know. He's never even met them. He doesn't play the blame game and point a finger at them. No, this guy is devastated over a problem he didn't create. If you like, he has got it. That's exactly how he feels. And so down there in verse 7, he is razor sharp in his honesty when he frankly admits something like this. Lord, I'm not only wanting to be part of the answer, but Lord, I am part of the problem. You know, my friend, that takes humility, doesn't it? And there are times in your life and in mine when we have to be willing to walk down that particular path if we're going to see God working effectively in the lives of people all around us in our church and in our wider community. It takes humbleness of heart. But what a lesson for you and I to take on board today. The broken-hearted people are mightily used by God to restore a broken world. Why? Because they've come to see the greatness of their God. And they've come to admit their personal guilt before God. Such men and women, they've caught a fresh glimpse of the sovereignty of God. But they're also very conscious of their personal sinfulness. That's what prayer is really all about, isn't it? And that's when time spent down on your knees is well, well worth it. In fact, if you take a look at the prayer of Nehemiah, you'll discover this. There was intensity and honesty and realism and urgency in his heartfelt confession. Did you see what he does next? Having praised God for who he is and then said sorry for the sin that he committed and the people committed. See what he does in verses 8 and 9. He reminds God of his many, many promises. In other words, he earths his prayer to the word of God. He claims a promise and he pleads for the promise to be realised. It's more or less saying something like this. But like the psalmist who would follow after him. He's saying, Lord, it is time for you to work. You've said it. I've done my bit. We've done our part. Not so for to you. The ball is in your court. And you see what he does right here? Something you and I may struggle to do, let's be honest. He quotes from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. You see, this guy knew his Old Testament, didn't he? Ever so well. And he reminds God of what he had written in days of yore. So we ask God to forgive the people, to regather them, to restore them to his favour and to his blessing. This fellow had a good grasp of scripture. He knows he can trust God, for God always delivers the goods. And that hasn't changed. And then you see what he does down there at the end of it all in verses 10 and 11. He leaves it all with the Lord. He brings his burden to the Lord and 
He leaves it there. But like Hezekiah, he spreads his petition before the Lord. And what a bold one it is. One man's unshakable confidence in God's character. One man's firm belief in God's power. One man's solid acknowledgement of God's faithfulness. My friend, the God who said it is the God who has done it. The God of revelation is the God of redemption. You see, this God of yesterday is the same God of today. And he'll be no different in all of our tomorrows. A God of transforming wonders, a God of miracles, the unchanging one. And even in your life and mine today and in the week that we have just entered, he's the God who has done it all before. And surely he's the God who can do it again. I reckon in closing there are three wonderful blessings that you and I can see in this whole incident for our friend Nehemiah. You see, God loves to bless his people, doesn't he? And he will use all sorts of means to do just that. Number one, this whole exercise. Give Nehemiah a deeper experience of God. Let me put it like this. He proved God in a way that he'd never ever done before. He found in his God someone whose grace was truly sufficient. And my dear friend, in your life and mine, that's why tough times, challenging times, often intrude into each of our hearts and lives. It was so that we might learn to lean afresh and that we might learn anew something about the great God of heaven. And the second thing we discover is this. It also gave him a greater sense of indebtedness to his prayer partners. Because by the time you come down to the end of the chapter, other people have joined him in seeking God's face and in storming the gates of glory. And you know what a difference it makes in your life and mind and in your church and mind when we as the people of God unite and we pray together. And the third lesson we learn is this. It gave him a wider perspective on the entire problem. You see, before the sovereign Lord, see what it says at the end of the prayer, at the end of the chapter. This king, who was the mightiest man in the face of the earth at this juncture in history, he's only a man, a teeny weeny individual, made of flesh and blood, few bits of dust who are held together by the power of God. But only God can bring that difference in perspective. Only God can do the like of that. Surely that's the essence of true prayer, isn't it? It's when you and I cast ourselves at the feet of the Saviour. And when you and I pray like that, it sets our faith on fire. It reminds me of a chorus I learned many, many moons ago and some of you will recognise these words, I'm sure. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specialises in things thought impossible. He does the things others cannot do. Let me say this. In your life and mine today and tomorrow and the day after, no river is too wide for him. No water is too deep for him. No hill is too high for him. No road is too long for him. 
question we grapple with today is this. Can God? And the answer we have this morning is simply this. God can. God can. For Nehemiah, his favourite position when faced with a problem was down on his knees. And beloved friends, when you and I do what he did, and when we are down on our knees, guess what? They don't knock. The reality is that prayer makes a world of difference because prayer makes all the difference in the world. May God bless you. Real good. Amen.